sun has come down with the plague. The plague is the 12-hour shifts four mm-hmm. or five times a week. Um, I am a little under the weather myself, but I will make it. I'm hoping that everything is fine. I'm going to be getting some some sickness tests later today. Um, but let's uh let's just get going uh welcome to work stoppage if you'd like to support us and help pay for you know our medical bills or you know slowly getting john out from underneath the boot of the garbage truck power washer uh you can donate uh or you can give us five dollars at uh patreon.com slash work stoppage it really goes a long way to helping us do this uh this project and the show bringing news to all of you uh you can also just share the podcast with people Uh, if you really like particular episodes like last week we did the you know the victory of the farm workers in india which was i mean we were very happy to report that and and if we get that out to other people and let them know about that that'd be really helpful to us but uh in the meantime let's uh let's go to what's actually happening this week and we're starting with a follow-up on the Kellogg's workers who have been on strike for over two months now. And uh, there is a new tentative agreement that may actually come to pass, but we're not entirely certain. Yeah. So, uh, cause this, this was all happening very quickly. Uh, the, the agreement came, was announced the, the morning of the day that we're recording this. So I'd originally put this on here as a story to illustrate just how shittily the uh, striking workers have been treated by Kellogg's because like we, we've reported on the, the Kellogg strike uh, at least once before, I think a couple of times and you know, the beginning of the strike Kellogg's cut off their health insurance. Um, and recently uh, just, just before this week, I actually think it was like right before Thanksgiving Kellogg's announced that they were just going to move to permanently replace striking workers with scabs a thing that is still for some reason legal despite union agreements. I've been reading stuff that apparently the, the head of the NLRB has, has expressed a willingness to overturn some past precedent on that and has been basically begging unions to file challenges to this sort of thing. But considering, uh, the speed with which the NLRB tends to move on this stuff, (laughs) I feel like you'll get a charge for one strike and then you won't get an answer on it until that strike's been over for a year. Yeah, that's probably. I mean, if that does sort of, if that does happen, that's almost certainly what's going to come to pass. Like, it's not going to help these Kellogg's workers, uh, you know, this week as they're you right. know, looking at a new tentative agreement. Uh, I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, like the idea that they can basically fire when they say replace, they mean fill the position and fire the union worker. I'm almost certain of it. Yeah. And that sounds like getting fired for union activity. Yeah. And so like, as, as Lena was saying, there's a new tentative agreement announced this morning, but like with um, uh, most of the other strikes that we've covered, like the, it, you know, that that agreement still has to be ratified. So for now, for today, the, when we're recording this, they're supposed to ratify the agreement, well, vote on ratifying the agreement this weekend. So for right now, the strike is still on. Um, the, since the ramp up of the tactics against the workers, the, uh, the, the folks had started calling for, uh, some of the folks anyway, had been calling for a boycott of Kellogg's brands. So 
Uh, obviously, if that's something that you were participating in, I wouldn't stop that just yet until we actually get word on whether the agreement is actually voted on. But uh, this was actually this this comes a, about a week and a half, I believe, after uh, some frustration coming out of the the BCTGM bargaining team because of places where the company had had basically stonewalled and and previously refused to negotiate specifically on the issue of the two-tier contract system that the Kellogg's workers have been protesting like uh, most of the most of the stories that I've seen on it including a really good piece in Rolling Stone that came out just a couple of days ago um which I've posted on our our social media that pointed out the insane hours that that these folks have had to work, uh, basically doing mandatory OT to the tune of 75, 85 hour work weeks. Uh, and all the meanwhile, you know, Kellogg's is protesting that their workers get paid so much. Meanwhile, leaving out the fact that they're forcing people to basically work double time every week and never see their families. But the other big thing, tying it with all the other big strikes we've been talking about is, is, that Kellogg's had previously, and where there'd been this big disconnect preventing a tentative agreement before, had previously been completely opposed to any sort of give on the two-tier system, any sort of rollback at all. They, they, had, they had given this, this tiny offer of, oh, well, all right, you don't like the two-tier thing where we don't pay any of the new workers any money, and they're doing the same jobs as other workers, but they're getting paid half as much, and they don't have, they, they have like, more expensive healthcare, you know, all, all the standard two tier bullshit we talk about. And they're like, fine, we will allow some of these, these lower tier workers to become, you know, the upper tier workers. If they've been working at the company for at least four years. Right. And that was only if they were part of this bargaining, like, right. Basically, if you, if you were working there on the day that the contract gets ratified, then, if you had been there for four years, you would be brought into the uh, better tier, uh, which is like probably not a lot of I mean, it's a significant amount of people for the people who are working there, but it's not a lot in the long run. And uh, I guess it looks like the way that they've made a concession here is not by getting rid of the second tier. Uh, and this is a reporting just from a, like a CNN article that came out earlier today. And uh, they're saying that instead of just for this group of bargaining workers, that it's going to be a permanent structure that if anyone makes it to the four year mark, that they then are brought into the second, you know, better tier, which I mean, is a significantly better thing, though. I mean, the idea that you have to be there for four years under terrible conditions uh, is is going to is going to suck and especially because this is a five-year contract we don't even know if they're going to try to roll that back next time although knowing the strength of the union and hopefully the strength of the union increases they might if they do accept this tentative agreement uh they have next time to fully get rid of the second tier as they've kind of whittled away this one uh but it's not you know a full eradication of that second tier yeah like you it's it's so hard to make any sort of it's hard to make a prediction if they were going to go on strike next year much less five years from now like that's so much time but still bctgm at least i would say this year has had a 
you know, pretty successful track record with their strikes. Like they won the Frito-Lay strike pretty solidly. They won the Nabisco strike quite solidly. Um, and this one, well, look, obviously it sucks to not just be like, no, screw you. No more two tier, take it out or nothing. But when you have, you know, all the workers getting their healthcare cut off and with the, the law protecting the company for the moment, at least in a move to essentially d- to functionally decertify the union because like that's basically what the ability to permanently replace striking workers allows the company to do is to basically just deny right. the existence of the union, which is, you know, sh- should the, even under our shitty labor code, like you would think under the NLRA, that would not be legal since it seems kind of counter to the entire point of the NLRA. But obviously, you know, decades of chipping away at that via legal precedents and via concessionary members of the NLRB under reactionary governments, both Democratic and Republican. You know, there's all these it's it's like so many reforms under capitalism, like they, they'll get, throw you this bone to try and defuse a powerful workers movement. And then over time, just like, you know, things like the New Deal, the successive capitalist regimes will just chip away and chip away and chip away and roll that back. And and we see that even with just the things that these folks are striking over the fact that it's like the whole, one of the biggest accomplishments of unions, one of the, the greatest things they ever you know fought for was the eight hour day, the 40 hour work week. And these folks are being forced even with a union contract to work 70, 80 hours a week. And so like, yeah, that may get you, you know, a decent salary, be one of the few jobs that actually allows you to be able to afford to buy a house in this country. But if you can never ever see your family because you're at work all the time and working that much, you know, potential ways we've, we've reported on before, like working that much is is essentially deadly. Like it cuts years off your life, no matter what the job you're doing. And, and, and these folks in a lot of cases are doing jobs, with a lot of repetitive motion. So there's all the extra, you know, harsh side effects of that. So. But given the, the the labor environment that we're in now, it, I I still think it's a victory that they they've been able to get this pathway because like that's definitely a strike against the two tier system, getting a way for the workers who are in the lower tier to be able to move into the higher tier. But I have to imagine part of Kellogg's wager on this is that so like in some of the other strikes that we've covered or just some of the other labor struggles where we've seen bones thrown to workers in, in, in areas with really high turnover, where for instance, you would have, I, I remember we talked, we talked about this in the episode on Detroit. I do mind dying where you had these plants throwing in, okay, the workers will get like new workers will get the union benefits if they've been there for 90 days with the thought process of, well, we have so much turnover. So many people aren't ever going to get to that 90 days. And I have to imagine part of Kellogg's calculus in this is that even though they are, they are taking a loss from their position by giving this pathway into the, the previous better tier, I have to imagine they're wagering that they're going to be able to, Fire people at three years, 364 days. Exactly, exactly. Because, like, folks had already reported in the past, uh, well, on, like, even with the previous contract where there was no, the only pathway was basically, like, there's a set number of people that were in the top tier. And if one of them retires or quits or dies, like, one person could, you know, potentially go up into that upper tier because there was, like, this set number. 
But they had come up with all these ways to keep from doing that. So I have to imagine Kellogg's has got all sorts of underhanded nonsense planned to, to do this. But, I mean, still... This is definitely better than the tentative agreements they were offered before. So that's still Wait, a win. So you're telling me that the Kellogg's guy, the, the was it the the masturbation guy? Is that who he is? Uh, <laughs> I think he, so. The graham he's, cracker he's, guy? He's the, he, yeah, he's the one who is basically creating a serum that makes workers live forever so that they can not promote new people to the... Uh, to the new, <laughs> <laughs> to the new level. <laughs> yeah, you know, if they could do it, I'm sure. Yeah, that was is definitely something they would try and do. But so, I mean, it's tough. Like the workers, because of the the legal situation that that unions are in in this country, we're in a really shitty position. Uh, it's a, a tough spot to bargain from, even with the the current strength of uh, like relative increase in strength of the labor movement over the past year or so. Um, so I, we'll have to see what the, what the, the workers think about it. You know, this weekend, that'll be the telling thing when they vote. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what they think of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful, uh, that, you know, I guess something, I don't know what I'm hopeful about. You know, I just said I'm hopeful, but I'm really just like, it would be nice if the workers, you know, got something good out of this. Y- yeah. I mean, ultimately, even regardless of like the specific stuff in this contract, cause it's also got, you know, a 3% raise on ratification, annual cost of living wage increases, which is a lot, that's a much better win than the, you know, one time 3% raise like that. That's good. But even regardless of these individual things, I think based on the stuff that the, the reporting that's been coming out from these picket lines, if anything, it's more like the, the increased engagement of the rank and file within the union, the yeah. knowledge that workers gain of their collective strength, seeing the victories in like the Nabisco and, and Frito lay strike. I get I, that's kind of the thing that I think might be the, the single biggest win coming out of this. If this is the end of the strike, hopefully will be like that more engaged rank and file, uh, pushing to, you know, to take the support that BCTGM workers got from other parts of the labor movement, other parts of their own, you know, union at other companies through this and carry that forward and amplify that as we hope, you know, to build the movement wider as we go forward. Yeah. And I guess in the in the thought of building the movement, we have our next story, which is, again, you know, on Amazon Watch. Uh, this time we're talking about the biggest shopping day of the year last Friday, Black Friday, where workers around the world had gone on strike in protest of work conditions and the general kind of uh, uh, oligarchy of of Amazon around the world. And we have workers, you know, from Cambodia, Turkey, Luxembourg, Austria, Germany, Poland, Zealand, India. Oh, no, no, I should say New Zealand. Uh, I've, I'm reading this list out of order. So. <laughs> I, yeah, I really, this is something, every time I see like New Zealand, I'm like, oh, I really keep kicking myself for not learning the correct pronunciation of like the actual name for New Zealand it, where it's like Ao Tore, the, the Maori name that like, uh-huh. not the fake British name that we all use. Uh, yeah, uh, John, if you're editing this, if you could go ahead and insert a uh, correct pronunciation of that for us, that would be really great. In Maori, it is said as Aotearoa, Aotearoa. In English, it is usually pronounced as Aotearoa, Aotearoa. From Maori, Aotearoa. 
And now you know. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I'm sure, folks. At this point, this has become at least specifically in Europe. I think at this point is kind of like an annual tradition. Like we we mentioned a couple episodes ago, workers in Germany with the Verdi Union at Amazon going on strike for I think they said the eighth consecutive year. Um, but this was like because this is a lot of this is, is out of an article from Jacobin where they're talking about trying to make this like more directly organized under the the you know auspices of this group the make amazon pay coalition which has a whole bunch of organizations involved but like the two bigger names that i saw were the uni global union which is like a union global union federation with 150 affiliates representing 20 million workers and also the progressive international which is like an umbrella group that includes a whole bunch of different um like progressive movements around the world and they, they put out a press release about this that said, quote, this year's actions are set to be much larger with strikes and protests planned in multiple cities in at least 20 countries across every inhabited continent on Earth. The Global Day of Action will bring together activists from different struggles, labor, environment, tax, data, privacy, anti-monopoly, as trade unionists, civil society activists, and environmentalists hold joint actions. And, like, this is, I think, an important way to frame this because of like the way that transnational companies operate like it cuz it's the struggling against a company that's like Amazon is so big it's like you know struggling against a company like Google or fucking I, I, Walmart maybe less so because they're so more primarily concentrated in the US but like we cuz we've seen example after example of even where countries have theoretically like in more social democratic countries that have stronger labor protections You'll have these companies like Amazon come in and just be like, ah, we're just going to pretend those don't exist. <laughs> and and so this level of coordination, you can hit Amazon's you know, pocketbook in in multiple points along the now on everyone's, you know, lips constantly supply chain. <laughs> so like obviously, you know, a one day protest is always going to have limitations, but the ties that you can build with these sorts of internationalist movements, I think, you know, like bode well for future actions. Cause, cause like you said that it's an organizing strike, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like demonstrating the ability to actually hold these actions in multiple countries in like multiple continents at the same time. Well, Let's hope that we see a larger coalition next year for their continued strike because, of, I mean, obviously this is a strike that's going to happen every single year uh, yeah. for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Like, I mean, like you mentioned, like specifically they had garment workers in Cambodia protesting for back pay that was owed to them due to factory closures, which we covered like a story about that, uh, I think, feel like six months ago. Um, so unfortunate to see they are still fighting for that back pay, but you know, all power to those workers, 15,000 delivery workers striking in Italy for 24 hours, demanding fairer wages and set schedules workers in Cape town, South Africa, protesting at the construction site of Amazon's new African HQ, which is under construction and warehouse tech and delivery workers in the UK protesting Amazon's refusal to negotiate with their unions, you know, is another one of these cases, just like in Germany, where it's like, there's already prevailing labor law that says, you know, if you're in this industry, this is how you negotiate with unions. And Amazon's just like, what if we just didn't do that and bribed your politicians not to do anything about it? 
Yeah. And they're so, good at that. Yeah. So like you were saying, like, hopefully this is a, a stepping stone to, to build on bigger and bigger actions and, and stuff that can, you know, really, because like you were saying, like big black Friday, cyber Monday, you know, the whole, this whole, like that four day period over that weekend is such a big part of like Amazon sales. And especially with like COVID as more and more and more commerce goes online. Like, if you can disrupt a significant chunk of their logistical chain on those four days, like that's a big impact. So, so hopefully yeah. we'll see this build in, in future years. Yeah. Well, and, uh, speaking of businesses, uh, doing covert shit, uh, constantly, yeah. and, uh, we're going to be moving to our most upsetting story of the week. So yep. if you're be prepared for this one, uh, we're going to be covering a uh, company in Georgia that has been uh, caught doing slavery and human trafficking to the order of tens of thousands of workers and yeah. uh, uh, literally holding people at gunpoint, uh, stealing people's immigration paperwork and and passports and and all sorts of like classic things that we would have seen like in the kafala system yeah so like like lena was saying like this this whole thing has so many of the hallmarks of the various ways that slavery continues um around the world despite you know the capitalist claim to have eliminated slavery which is not true um yeah, so this is specifically coming out of a of an indictment that was unsealed recently, and a lot of this is coming out of a story from Vice, where 24 people uh, have been charged with from, from this operation after a three-long investigation into, I mean, we have all the, you know, different specific legal terms for it, human trafficking, wage theft, visa fraud, but it's, it, this is, they are, run, they were running an agricultural slave ring in and this is, you know, this isn't being done in, you know, by neo-colonial enterprises in, in Africa or in Southeast Asia or even in the Middle East where, you know, the U.S. likes to pretend, oh, these things, these things only happen in other places. Again, always neglecting the fact that even when it's happening in places in the global south, it's at the behest of Western corporations and, and, and wouldn't be done otherwise. And also they're protected by our court systems, as right. we've said that, oh, that's up to their court systems to deal with. Right, exactly. You know, the court systems that were, you know, set up by largely by the IMF um, in order to facilitate that sort of thing. But no, this is happening specifically. This is in Georgia in the U S so, um, yeah, not, not only Georgia, like, like the country, <laughs> but yeah. That... So like in addition to, uh, the more well-known systems of like prison slavery and, um, you know, abuse of of like immigrant domestic workers, which we've talked about on the show, this was just your classical, bringing people into the country with the intent of forcing them to work on farms for little to no money whatsoever at the threat of physical violence. Like, uh, and this was specifically targeting migrant workers from Latin America and the, the indictment references specifically 100 victims, but we'll get into the fact that that has got to be an incredibly small chunk of, of the people affected by this. But the, the, the indictment cites specifically uh, just over a hundred victims who were forced to dig onions with their bare hands for pennies per bucket uh, while being threatened by, you know, armed uh, assailants. And in, and that's, you know, the core of what they were doing, but 
you know, this whole operation included smuggling, labor trafficking, uh, withholding people's passports, keeping people in in unsanitary, insufficient living conditions, um, physical violence against the migrants of people being beaten, and in one, at least one case of of being uh, of actually being you know hit um, sexually assaulted, and. So these these migrant workers were brought into the country on promises of of being, you know, paid better wages that they could get in their home countries for migrant agricultural work. And then when they got here, they had their passports taken from them. They were charged illegal fees for all the various, you know, things like living conditions, which they uh, were no were not told about before they were they were brought into the country. Oftentimes they were illegally forced again, often with the threat of violence to do work outside of their already illegal contracts, such as, you know, lawn care for the people running this construction, restaurant work. Yeah, uh, what and, they're saying is, you know, if if someone protested a little bit about, you know, being held at gunpoint, they then were subject to additional labor as a punishment. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And 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 to to emphasize like if like the 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 very you know, the 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 ties to the more I guess, quote unquote, traditional forms of slavery like the 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 traffickers, the the criminals involved in this in this ring, which was was dubbed by the the feds who investigated this, uh, the Patricio Transnational Crime Organization, the people within this ring who were profiting from it were even you know literally selling and trading the individual migrant workers to other members of the ring, and they were estimated by this indictment to have made over two hundred million dollars as a part of this scheme and to emphasize like <laughs> trafficking a hundred people in slavery is already, you know, a horrific crime, but the indictment mentions that this ring started at least six years ago and that the organization that as a way of like doing legal cover for how they were running this and getting people into the country and basically doing visa fraud, they submitted over 71,000 applications for for migrant visas and now not all 71,000 actually were you know brought into the country but the US admitted to issuing quote thousands they don't say how many but thousands so at least 10 times the number of specifically cited victims in this to foreign nationals as part of this scheme and 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 then they you know they were brought into the country and held in these slavery conditions and most of these workers, according to the reporting that we've seen, are are no longer in the country. They were, you know, uh, either they either left after the they were released by the by the criminal organization, or they were in some cases just deported. Which is like something that I want to highlight about this case because it, it's good that this organization was broken up. I'm glad that the the, the feds investigated it and broke it up, but like. This investigation took them three years. They've only cited 102 victims listed who they claim are being protected and prevented from being deported. But contrast the, you know, resources spent on this where, you know, people were actually, you know, being kept as slaves, beaten, like forced to work at gunpoint for no money, uh, in some cases being sexually assaulted, the, like actual crimes the state should be investigating versus the amount of money that's currently being spent 
by the state to try and like deport, harass, hold in concentration camps any non-white migrant that tries to come into the country, most of the time just fleeing violence and poverty created by U.S. imperialism in the first place. Like the the amount of resources is completely like they, they're not even comparable. And yeah. so it's it's kind of hard to like even find any sort of silver lining that the state investigated this because no, there's like, not the that resource disparity shows you the actual priorities of of the the state. Well, and I mean all of the amb- ambiguity in here is I think what I find to be the most concerning part when it says, you know, thousands of visas that were issued, that means that there were thousands of workers that were legally uh, to quote unquote legally, you know, brought in, but that doesn't account for the probably thousands of workers that came in anyway. That right. they, because like these people are not above holding someone at gunpoint and paying <laughs> right. them pennies for for onions. The, I don't think that they give a damn about legal status. Besides the fact that they need to have enough people of legal status so that if an inspector comes in, that you know they don't have to cease operations in order to you know cr- create some air of legitimacy. And on top of that, like that, there is not a single death listed, which I find incredibly yeah. conspicuous. Conspicuous. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this, these are not conditions in which people don't die. Like, yeah, no, I absolutely like. I mean, just the like the cramped, awful conditions and the lack of food, and and of course, no access to any medical care, just from the sort of stuff that would crop up from working in agricultural conditions, even legally in the, in the U S we've talked about before the, the horrific conditions faced by the legal like migrant work system in the U S much less the stuff that these people were put through. And like to point out the other like ways that this sort of thing is integrated within how, you know, agribusiness works in the U S like this wasn't just like, you know, the, uh, these 24 people have their like one shell company or whatever. That's, that's selling this out. There are multiple business owners charged in this indictment. They specifically mention a Charles King owner of Kingsbury farms. And who was also a registered agent of the other company involved in this hilltop packing and who, which was owned by a Stanley Magali who are both named in this indictment and alleged to have aided and abetted the scheme in order to profit from their cheap labor. And that's the thing. It's like, we've already talked about how like the, the legal above board structures like uh, abuse the shit out of migrant workers in this country and force them into some of the worst working conditions like that there are here. Yeah. It was, the war, it was you, actually the first story we ever covered on this show, which was the, the Allen brothers packing plant. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's like, <laughs> it's literally the, was, it was in the very first episode of the show. But, and that's the thing. So it's like, they're working with these already existing companies and making $200 million in profits and considering how artificially, cause this is the thing. This is how us agribusiness provides cheap produce year round. It's not because they've, you know, developed miracles of science that allow them to produce like goods far more brilliantly than other people around the world. It's like, no, they're just using labor abuses to do it by getting away from paying their workers. And, and like, of course not, you know, every, it's not like everything on your supermarket shelf is produced directly by slavery like this, but like 
the this chocolate is, is what <laughs> the chocolate. Yes, the chocolate. Is. <laughs> but like, this is the sort of thing. Like, it, it's it's one of those like start seeing patterns, stop being surprised sort of things. It's like it, this stuff ha- happens in West Africa. It happens in Southeast Asia. It happens in the Middle East. It happens in the U.S. And it happens in all those places for the same reason. It's like mm-hmm. it's the same capitalist system that depends on further and further lowering labor costs in order to continue to show profit growth. Yeah. And like without that, like it's, it's, you know, it's the whole thing where capitalism acts like a shark, where if it stops moving, it stops expanding, it dies. And like, this is the sort of stuff that results from that. Like the, these are the, the, the material incentives produced by the system that props up, you know, our entire country and way of Western consumerism. Right. And I mean, like it would be really great if it was, if this, the article headline here was very last slavery operation in the (laughs) United States comes to a close. Uh, but I, I, We'll let you know, listener, that is not the headline <laughs> no. of this particular article. No, and that's, it's like, that's the thing. It's like, this is, the because the material incentives exist that way, and because the people who profit from this stuff, not, you know, the individuals involved in this trafficking ring, but the CEOs of the big agribusiness companies and the logistics companies that they work with and the supermarkets that they sell stuff to, Like those are the people that are part of the big bourgeoisie who control how our labor laws are written. And as long as that system's in place, these sorts of things are going to keep happening. And so I'm, I'm look, I'm glad this was, was, was shut down. Good job for the the investigators. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I, I hope, although I don't have a lot of confidence that they actually do uh, their jobs and try and seek out these victims and provide them the compensation and, and legal protection that they deserve. I'm not going to hold my breath for that to happen, but you know, I hope it does. Uh, but you, it's, it's tough to find any silver lining in this story because without any sort of addressing of the fundamental material conditions that lead to this sort of thing, there's no reason to expect that it's going to stop happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, like I, Covering this stuff is is really like difficult. I've actually read this story three times now, just because I need to make sure that I got the details right. But like, also, it's just a absolutely devastating story that that more so explains that none of this is over. Like we we no. talked about how slavery wasn't over in the United States because of the prison system, but we didn't necessarily expand it to you know this. We've maybe uh kind of uh gestured at the at the idea that that there are other exploitative industries where people are paid very little but this is another example that should show us that there is no there is no thing that the capitalist class will not do to put themselves above other people yeah no absolutely you're 100 percent right and so like this sort of story is i think it's like it's we have to fight for reforms like we have to show that collective struggle can win direct material gains to people's lives. I'm not trying to take the ultra left position of only revolution and nothing else. Like, cause that doesn't do, that doesn't work. You can't build a mass movement that way. But like, this is this, it's like, this is why you want to keep, you got to keep this in the back of your mind. Like when you're fighting for reforms within the capitalist system, it's like, we have to make things better for workers. So they have more time and they have more breathing room in their lives to actually, you know, examine 
the conditions around them, but we have to like understand every time that we're doing that, that it's like the system has to go because it keeps producing this sort of horrific violence and oppression. And it's not going to stop until we get rid of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, geez, on that same thought of it's not going away, uh, you (laughs) know, we have our, our next story of school bus drivers who are looking at the fall school year and saying, well, they're not giving us a raise and they're not doing anything and our conditions are way worse. We're getting paid absolute shit and being exploited in a in a truly awful way. But uh, uh, we've seen across the United States that a lot of these bus drivers, and these are school bus drivers primarily, uh, are doing things like uh, you know just different types of strikes, whether they be sick outs or other or slightly more like uh, above, like open, openly striking kind of situations. But uh, yeah, across the the United States because of covid and all of the other awful things that are happening here we're seeing uh school bus drivers go on strike yeah like there's a lot of aspects of 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 these stories that you know they it's it's the same stuff we see across the the entire you know working class in the u.s uh understaffing overwork insufficient pay, no control over scheduling, no control over working conditions, limited safety protections. But this is something that I feel like has been relatively underreported as a nationwide um, movement because I, I feel like it's just, it's not, it's, it's more fragmented and it's, it's not as easy. I think of a story to cover as some of the, the more big centralized strikes, like, you know, Kellogg, John Deere, the Columbia student strike, IATSE, all that sort of thing where it's, you know, one union is representing a large group of workers, but because I've been seeing over the past couple of months, all sorts of stories when I'm, you know, when I'm looking for stories for the show, it'll be, Here's 12 bus drivers going on strike in this town. Here's 20 bus drivers doing sick outs in this city, but it's all individual stories. And and finally, like I saw a piece in the guardian that is the primary thing that I was looking at for this, where they, they tried to kind of do a more comprehensive look at this. And it's really pretty wild to see like how widespread this is essentially a nationwide crisis facing school bus drivers because like last year, obviously, the vast majority of schools were not open in person. Obviously, some were, but, but most places, if they could, went to remote learning. And so that, you know, carried with it its own issues for bus drivers because they either weren't working or they were working vastly, vastly lower hours. But now, you know, with vaccines and with the U.S.'s abandoning of any and all non-pharmaceutical uh, COVID protection measures, um, with schools opening back up, you have the school bus drivers coming back, but they're coming back in an environment where like the inflation or, you know, they, I'm not going to go into the whole story right now, but profiteering that leads to what's called inflation uh, has like jack cost of living up. And you have all these other places where they're seeing a rise in wages due to workers having an understanding of their power. And so, you know, you'll have places like Amazon or like even shitty anti-labor companies like Starbucks will be offering wages that are higher than these school bus drivers can get. So you'll have these workers coming in with insufficient pay. And so a lot of their colleagues have realized, well, why would I do this job 
if I can make more somewhere else. So they leave. And then the, the school district, instead of saying, oh, well, clearly, uh, as capitalists, we understand market signals. And so this means in order to retain the amount of labor that we need, we will raise wages to attract more workers. Uh, no, they've instead tried to go with the labor intensification route of basically saying, or we can just make all of our drivers work double shifts and not increase their pay. And so like some of the examples that, that like I found for this, and this is by no means an exhaustive list was, was strikes, sick outs, as you were saying, there's all these different things because it's so fragmented. A lot of these workers aren't union. And so it's difficult for a lot of them to do official strikes, but the, we've seen basically work stoppages to, you know, use, use our, our own podcast title in North Carolina, South Carolina, New Mexico, Minnesota, Maryland, Florida, Indiana, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Vermont, Virginia, New York, and here in Rhode Island, where I am. But so, like, it's all over the country. Yeah. One thing I did want to point out uh, without interrupting you was uh, you said a little a little phrase that I think that everyone should learn if they don't know it, which is non-pharmaceutical intervention. Uh, and I and I don't know if everybody knows what that means, because I think that, you know, maybe you do with following, you know, leftist podcasts or anything like that in relation to health. But when it comes to that sort of thing, we're talking about like, you know, mask wearing, social distancing, paying people to stay home, all of the things that actually do things to put a damper on COVID and other sorts of like health risks. And uh, and and Dan was mentioning that there, the United States has entirely abandoned that sort of protections which would do things like reduce the amount of variants that we run into mm -hmm. and things like that so i just wanted to to bring that that definition to everyone's everyone's brain when everybody thinks about oh I, i've got my boot my booster and so i'm safe you know you should just be aware that like non-pharmaceutical interventions are also required to do anything and like especially with the pushback on on school boards like we talked about the other week the how they're not going to make kids wear masks and so especially school bus drivers right. who are packed into a, a vehicle full of children who are screaming and throwing things and maybe your familiarity with buses is more kind <laughs> than mine but it was but <laughs> no, that like, sounds if you, right. if you imagine school buses yeah. uh yeah these and the, these people are are you know frontline workers they, they yeah. are they are out there working with the children just like the teachers are and 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 they deserve our respect just like any worker does yeah absolutely and 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 in 51% of school districts, so a majority of school districts in the U.S. Have, have reported facing a, quote, severe or, quote, desperate shortage of bus drivers. And when you hear some of the testimonials from some of these workers and these stories who have gone on strike or done sick outs or various forms of protest, it's not hard to see why. Like they have an example in here of uh, this worker, Nicole Marshall from Bullet County, Kentucky, who mentioned that rather than, you know, rather than hire more drivers or wage or raise wages, they just forced existing drivers to work double shifts. And to compensate them, they offered them a $50 a week stipend, which like <laughs> how many weeks are there in a school year? Thir yeah. 38, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. But that's like $50 a week. Like what? What that is, that is an insulting offer. And 
But, and that's even with the already insultingly low pay because these, these workers in Bullock County, Kentucky get the, uh, you know, incredibly generous salary of $19,000 a year. Um, which it's difficult to work that out to an hourly amount because of the fact that, you know, the school year isn't 50, isn't 52 weeks, but like this also comes with, you know, generally throughout the industry, drivers are, are forced to pay for their own commercial driver's license. They have to pay for their own background check. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, you know, they have to maintain a clean driving record, which is then monitored, you know, by the, by the school district. And, and Marshall in here said, quote, we've been begging for better pay. All the counties around us are getting better pay at this point, end quote. And there's like a quote in here from South Burlington, Vermont, where they said, quote, low wages, a grueling schedule, and difficulty recruiting and retaining transportation workers, end quote, led to drivers overwhelmingly voting to unionize with their local teachers union, the South Burlington Educators Association. Hey, I love that. I love I love them actually organizing with the teachers because I I we've seen so many times in the past that you know sometimes when it's slightly t- slightly tangential industries that they form their own unions and it makes it harder for them to coordinate and so them joining directly with the teachers is it's very very good. Yeah. So so that's like that's been the bright side of this story is we have started to see a tick up in school bus driver unionization, like specifically, uh, here in Rhode Island, um, where I am, there's several communities that over the last year, since the pandemic started, have voted to unionize with uh, Teamsters local 251. And because of the refusal of local school boards, who I will point out have had access to a shitload of extra federal money. So they have no excuse not to increase these workers wages. Um, because of their refusal to actually improve workers' conditions, they've they've gone on strike in, in multiple uh, towns in 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 Rhode Island. Where and there was a quote in here from uh, one of the uh, reps from Teamsters Local 251 who said, "Quote: The last straw was the paltry raises offered by Durham, which is Durham Social Services, which is a uh, large uh, contractor for that the is basically used to hire out drivers." Um, continuing the quote, which is the third largest school transportation service in the United States, end quote. And they're also trying, in addition to the wages, trying to get a guarantee of at least 180 working days. And that's the other thing with this is, is how many of these folks face such an uncertain amount of pay because you'll have all these times they're like, oh, we decided we don't need you, so we're not paying you for the day. And it's like, that's not, how is a person supposed to support themselves? Yeah, I actually just put together the math on this one, just based on like the kind of general uh, terms that are in here. Is, uh, uh, the average uh, school year is 36 weeks long. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the bus drivers are getting paid for every day of those weeks because, you know, maybe right. there's days off or maybe, you know, any half days or anything like that. But uh, the $50 a week is like an $1,800 bonus in the year or whatever. But if you look at their actual pay, they're paid about $530 a week, uh, which is which is not a lot. And no, uh, <laughs> uh, no that's... and I mean, we had someone in the article who was saying that they were paid, you know, $15 an hour. And, uh, as a, as a, as someone who has to have their own like commercial, uh, transportation license and, and all sorts of other things that, that bus drivers are required to do, that is, they're almost similar to gig work in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's $15 an hour is not acceptable. 
for these people no. who are who are literally keeping our children safe. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like th- that's the thing is I feel like people think, oh, you know, the bus driver, that's a job. You just, you get somebody who's close to retirement and they do that because they like kids and they do that for a few hours a week. It's like, no, this is like, this is a lot of fucking work and it's an important job because like it makes sure that kids are able to get to and from school safely. Like that's pretty fucking important, <laughs> I think anyway. And like doing this in the midst of a pandemic just, you know, increases the difficulties of those working conditions. And, and there's a, there's a last quote in here from somebody from uh, a school bus driver from Florida, which I think really sums a lot of this up. And so this is a, a school bus driver named Chanta Henderson, who is, works in Seminole County, Florida, where they've been threatening to call a sick out. And she said, quote, the problem is not a bus driver shortage. The problem is a bus driver salary shortage. If the salaries reflected the duties of a bus driver, there would be no shortages. We can't continue to work as a bus driver and still have to work other jobs to make ends meet. We need to be paid what we are worth. Absolutely. Quote. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I think that that really sums it up. And while obviously it would be nice to be able to unite all of the various, you know, patchwork of thousands and thousands of school districts into one, you know, like if the Teamsters were going to just try and do a big unionizing effort that would be great but i i don't really see that as being in the cards and so it's at least good to see that we've seen things like 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 as you were mentioning like the um that teachers union in vermont actually stepping up to include the bus drivers and so that's something that you know if you're involved in a teachers union maybe reach out to your school bus drivers and the other members of your union and see if you can include them in there because like all these folks as with every every worker deserves a union and right now, it seems like school bus drivers could really use one. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, uh, with my segues, I'm thinking of people who need unions and are fighting to do that. Our final story is that of uh, art museum and cultural institutions across the United States actually doing some organizing. And uh, it's uh, it's definitely kind of hopeful for for these workers because this has been a, a very large organizing push. Uh, many different places trying to join AFSME, uh, the the union that is that mostly represents um, like uh, museum and and cultural workers in the United States. Well, I guess and around the world, right? <laughs> uh ask me is I'm pretty sure just the US cuz I think that right. A is Right, right, American. not. I mean like uh but there yeah, but the 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 movement itself is is oh, not yes. just within the United States. Yes, absolutely. And I I think this is one of those cases where I don't think it's one of the more obvious spots I think for a lot of people when they think of the need for for unions because I think there's a perception of like art and cultural institutions and it's like, Oh, well, those are, those are for the rich and the, those are for the ruling class goes to those <laughs> and they enjoy them, which, you know, because these can, these places are usually not publicly subsidized anymore in the U S their clientele may be those ruling class people, but the people who work there aren't, it's no, not, not like not they're being all. staffed with the Zions of rich families. Like, yeah. One of my and, best friends is a, is a museum worker. Uh, and I would not, I mean, like that's a proletarian person right there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and we've had a few people just, just as a hat tip to some of our, the folks in our discord, uh, who have sent in stories about this, this struggle. And, um, it was just, this was the the first time where I'd seen a, a comprehensive kind of 
look at the industry as a whole where I thought we could throw it in here, but specifically, so this is talking about the rise of, of, of unionization, like you were saying, largely with AFSCME, but also with some, some more into, like small independent unions across the board, again, prompted by lessons that workers have been taking out of the pandemic. Um, and, and, and just to illustrate like that, this is not some fancy, uh, hoity, like these are not people who are out there making, you know, 30, 40, 50, $60 an hour. Although that would be fine if they were like the, this is like people who like security officers or people who are visitor staff, people who work in the gift shop, people who show people around people who do maintenance, people who do restoration on artworks. The, the people who are actually doing the work of keeping these places running, keeping them open and available to the public who are making absolute trash wages and oftentimes being subject to a ton of abuse from the rich people who are on the boards of these places, which is where, you know, people's ire should be directed at, not, not at the, at the workers at these institutions. Like they have a, an, an advantage in a, 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 um, an instance in here where they're talking to a security officer at Walters Workers United, who are workers who have been organizing with AFSCME Council 67 at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore who they have been organizing to stop abusive treatment from managers with little to no oversight, the lack of ability to advance internally and an inequitable pay structure across the lines of race and class. And this security officer pointed out that he's been working there for five years, makes the same salary as every new hire, which is 15 bucks an hour. So like, this is another thing that I've always never understood. Like you want to pay somebody to guard this expensive artwork for the same salary they could get working at Dunkin' Donuts? Like, that just doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that I would try very hard to, <laughs> no. to, to protect anything. <laughs> Absolutely not. And But to, to get at why I was, I was bringing up the, the perhaps the, the misconceptions that I think some folks may have about the workers in this industry is that there's a, so much ideology bound up in these institutions and this is yet another case, especially for workers who are involved in like, um, creative in actually, anything. yes, any of the creative parts of this, they had a, a quote in here from Adam Rizzo, who works in the education department at the Philadelphia museum of art and serves as the president of their union who said, quote, there's this idea that's been circulating. And even I was enculturated to believe that, that the prestige element is compensation in and of itself, end quote. And where have we seen get, that get before? paid in exposure? It's like, oh God, you know, I know I don't, I'm, I had to, I list, I read this earlier and I, I was just like, I'm going to not freak out this time. I'm going to try <laughs> to stay calm. But uh, once again, like you cannot pay me in prestige. Mm -hmm. I swear to, f oh my God, that shit pisses I, me off. I can't go to my landlord and say, hey, so I got paid in prestige this month, so I need you to cut my do rent Do you not know who I am? <laughs> yeah. Do you not know who I am? I, I do not pay rent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and to highlight the issues faced by this, like outward facing workers. So, you know, fo folks that are interacting with the public. So, you know, like tour guides, fo folks that are doing the creative side of things here in these, you know, quote, these high cultural institutions have a median income of $30,000 a year. So like 
barely like again, $15 an hour, which is, you know, the unfortunate like thing that we're still using as a benchmark is not enough money to pay rent anywhere in this country. <laughs> and that's the median income. So there's plenty of people making less than that in, in, in this, you know, industry. And since a lot of these places are located in cities, you are going to have a higher cost of living. And so that's going to make that sort of a salary even less affordable for yeah. anybody trying to live in these areas. Yeah, there are quite a few of these institutions that are attempting this. Some museums that have recently unionized or at least started the process are um, the Whitney Museum, the New Museum, New York Solomon, uh, are something. G- Guggenheim. G- G- what? It's the Guggenheim. The Guggenheim Museum. Yeah, I don't know how to read that word. Uh, the Milwaukee Art Museum, the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. Shout out to Pittsburgh crew. Uh, Minneapolis Walker Art Center, the Portland Museum of Art. The are in in Maine, I should say. You know, because I don't think that. I mean, there's multiple Portlands. Uh, yeah. The the Brooklyn Museum and the Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art. I, I mean, shout outs to all these people out there engaging in the struggle for sure. So, of course, you have all these places pushing back very harshly on the unions. But one of the things I think that's interesting we've seen with this is like some of the some of the corporations that we've talked about, I, I you know, Evil Foods is one that pops to mind, but plenty of others where you, because these places tend to, you know, try to project that progressive liberal um, aura to try and act as if, no, 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 we're not, you know, one of these super harsh reactionary institutions. That's fucking, uh, f- photo of the person with the democratic flag that says it's not fascism when we do that, when we do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, exactly. But like, and, and so of course, yes, there has been less patronage of these institutions during the COVID-19 pandemic, because, you know, when places had to get shut down, there were less people coming in, there was, you know, no entry fees. And so of course, yes, there was something to, to the idea that they were taking in a bit less money. However, as we've seen in all sorts of industries, these places were more than happy to take a ton of money from the, the payment protection plan program or the, the paycheck protection, whatever the, the PPP loan thing stands for mm-hmm. um, the, the 228 largest cultural institutions in the U S received $771 million in order ostensibly to preserve paychecks, to keep people on the payrolls, to keep jobs. And they're like, here, we'll give you this money. Just don't fire people while we're going through this pandemic. And yet, these places, which, you know, talk about how they're so important to the liberal progressive culture of the cities they're in, took that money and fired 14,400 people and unsurprisingly disproportionately affecting workers of color. Of course. I mean, like, that's just, I mean, welcome to the United States. Yeah. And and uh, 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 there is one small bit of, you know, a good caveat there that in places that already had unions— they saw a 28% lower rate of workforce reductions during the pandemic, which is, you know, one of those things that was definitely highlighted by some of these workers and why they were fighting for unionization in the first place. And unfortunately, we've also seen uh, the sort of thing that we, the same tactic used by Dollar General, which is uh, Marciano Art Foundation and the Portland Museum of Art in Maine, uh, 
fuck you guys very much, uh, the institution, uh, decided, oh, you guys are unionizing? Oh, all of you are fired. <laughs> and they literally just laid off their entire visitor services staff. And of course, you know, claiming the excuse of, oh, well, you know, we've had hardship during the pandemic when it's, it's blatant. Very clearly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And like, I don't think they, I mean, they, they shouldn't get away with this. Uh, no. and, I mean, like there's not really going to be, uh, I mean, maybe in a year or two, we'll, you know, see something come down where our, yeah. these workers will maybe get back pay. But uh, I, I honestly, when it comes to these more like liberal institutions, they're given even more leeway than, Absolutely. than other uh, companies because the United States itself, the, the state apparatus believes in that, that prestige and, yeah, and, and really believes that these people deserve exemptions from being able to hold like have good working sta- uh, conditions yeah the media loves to just take the statements they get from these places at face value because you know oh we get to talk to somebody from moma oh how great it's like <laughs> those people are giving you the same anti-worker lies that you hear from amazon but you're willing to occasionally report on you know the bullshit from one of those but then you just believe the other one and it, yeah it's a it's a very frustrating uh aspect of you know how how the the media apparatus works but that being said there's been like a real surge in, 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 in these folks fighting for unions and winning, including, you know, the, the Philadelphia museum of art, which, which went, uh, went with AFSCME, got 89% of the workers votes and a big driver there just for folks who are also potentially looking at unionizing themselves who may be listening a big part that worked for their drive that got them to that 89% approval was they put together, and this is something I'm, I mean, this is not a, you know, a new idea. I'm sure plenty of people know about this, but they just went around to their coworkers and said, Hey, how much are you making? And they put that into a spreadsheet and they shared that around as part of their organizing effort to show people like, look at this, look at this shit. Look how much money the Philadelphia museum of art is taking in. And this is how much they're paying us. And, and so like when they, this is why they tell you not to tell anybody how much you make because of how valuable of an organizing tool it is. Yeah. Yeah. I know that it worked really well in, in my organizing thing. I mean, because we were in a sales situation where we actually could look at all of our stats. I got to look up how much money I made for the company in profit versus how much I actually got paid. And we went around and had everybody do that calculation for themselves. And it was fucking insane. I know that I mentioned the, the figure on the pod before, but it was like 13.38% of the profit I made for the company was what I was paid of the profit, not the, not the gross sales of the profit. Yeah. It's basically like a, like a, like a sales tax in Arkansas that I was paid. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, like, so props to these workers for, for, for organizing like this and, and like, it really does seem like this movement is really spreading throughout the the uh, whole, you know, the the cultural field as a whole, as far as these art institutions and and throughout this article, and it's an article from from Truth Out where they were, they were talking to some folks who've been organizing in there. It it one of the great things is is a lot of the folks at these different institutions talked about sharing their tactics, what worked for them, with folks they knew or had gotten contact with at other institutions and that's the stuff we need to see. Like, that's how, you know, we grow this labor movement. And so like, I think we're going to, we're going to see more good stuff out of this. Yeah. And that's why I put it as the last, 
last story, the the one, you know, good piece of news in a, in an unfortunately kind of dark episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, being that it is the, the end of the episode, we're just going to close it out here. Just joking, y'all. We have the meme <laughs> review. <laughs> That's uh, right, folks. We did not forget the meme review. <laughs> yeah, we've got it here for you. This uh, this first one is a Means TV uh, teenage stepdad style meme that has a TV dinner, Thanksgiving dinner. Which for TV dinners, I gotta admit, this is this is an okay looking TV dinner. Uh, yeah, it's it's <laughs> definitely not the worst, you know, hungry man or whatever thing you might you might find in your grocer's freezer. But the problem is the <laughs> cultural institution associated with it. And that's, yeah, that's right. And that's what this meme is about. So this is one that I was sharing around quite a bit on on Thanksgiving. Uh, because as this meme states up in the corner, Thanksgiving, the most demonic holiday. <laughs> and then there's like one of those big, like star stickers on the front of it says a cover story for genocide. We teach our children. <laughs> and there's a little, uh, cartoon pilgrim below it that, that, uh, like on top of the, the TV dinner, that's just, he's running around happy with, it and he's just shouting, it's some demented bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 1621 to 2021, 400 years of death. Yeah. And then, you know, at the bottom, a national delusion marked by recreational food waste and dudes sustaining traumatic brain injuries on television for entertainment. Yeah. I I don't want to get way too deep into the Thanksgiving stories, but uh, we spent some time talking about the treatment of like indigenous people here in the United States at my Thanksgiving with my family and my aunt was speaking of a like a small town that my grandparents were from and she said that one of the jobs of the police in that small town uh was to when any sort of uh, native american was to come anywhere near the town the police would pick that person up and bring them to the county line like that that is that is the kind of thing that is a historical practice in the united states so yeah and like this is the thing where I try to explain to people. It's like, I'm not trying to be, to tell people you can't get together with your family and have a meal and watch football. But like you, the only way that like the very first simplest step we can take in supporting our indigenous comrades and their rights and their struggle for self-determination is to stop perpetuating the cover story that U S settler colonialism uses to justify and cover over, you know, centuries of ongoing genocide. And so like, just that's, that's all I ever want to get with this stuff is like not trying to be overly preachy, but it's just like, well, we can't keep, it might feel like we know it. It might, cause we, we do, we talk this to death, like, which is um, on purpose because it's not talked about enough and it might not seem, it might be like, Oh, everybody knows that there, how there were hundreds and or thousands of genocides that happened here in the United States that, you know, basically relegated native people to, uh, fourth class citizen of some sort you know uh but but not that's not that's not a common practice and and a lot of people actually don't know the story so so go so make sure to tell those stories i had had a whole thing planned that i was going to talk to my folks about but was promptly shut down before i got a chance to so um i i do recommend though that folks check out um there's always good stuff 
put out on that day from indigenous folks about national day of mourning. Like specifically, I know Leonard Peltier put out his, his annual statement, which by the way, free Leonard Peltier, uh, you know, one of the longest right. serving political prisoners in the United States who was set up by the FBI. Um, but I, I definitely recommend folks check that stuff out just to get the actual story about Thanksgiving and, and to just keep that in mind for, for that. Yeah. Well, and another way that you can participate in the struggle is with this next meme. <laughs> that's now, right. this is a meme format that's been going around, which you know, people might be familiar with, is two people on uh, the left or right side of a bus. On the left side of the bus, it is facing a stone wall. And on the right side of the bus, they're see- seeing beautiful hills and the character is very happy. And they, each one is is captioned, uh, each character is captioned, you know, the person who is staring at the wall and is dreading whatever is the unions built on labor peace. And then the, the person who's very happy is unions built on labor struggle. And uh, this, this one was made for our podcast. Yes. <laughs> I was honestly surprised when it was, I was like, was this made by one of our listeners? <laughs> It was like, it's like, that's why, that's why Lena says that at the end of every episode, like, obviously, you know, there's those times for temporary tactical concessions you got to make sometimes to win a contract, but ultimately our wins come through struggle. Like, you know, it comes out of decades of labor peace, concessionary two-tier contracts, three-tier contracts, contracts like IATSEs that, you know, allow for 14 hour shifts with a nine hour turnaround. That's what labor peace gets you. Five years, six year contracts. Yeah. Whereas labor struggle, labor struggle gets you things like that new Burgerville workers union contract where you're getting those three Three months months? of schedule in advance. I know I can't get over that. But uh, um, let's let's imagine that maybe you're not quite in the labor struggle necessarily and that you were looking for something to do. Well, this next right. meme has got something for you. This has got people in swimsuits on computers in this <laughs> 80s style photo, which is, this is it's just a fucking ridiculous <laughs> yeah. photo. What the what I the really want to know made this photo. <laughs> what was this photo originally an ad for is really what I want to know because <laughs> it's 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 very much the like yeah, being the, a the nerd is sexy, I don't know. <laughs> Like everyone is rail thin and in the, the very eighties, like onesie swimsuits, <laughs> but they're all on these like gigantic, like tape reel computers <laughs> looking at like printouts and shit. Yeah, and it's, and it's just, it's, it's just captioned. Are Go you ahead. looking for a way out of wage slavery? Do you want to work in a fast paced and fun environment? Welcome to the new and exciting world of shit posting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this first, uh, feature of this job is false. It says make $0 <laughs> annually. I'm saying you could make five or $10 monthly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There is always that potential, but then no benefits receive death threats regularly, spread communist propaganda, alienate old friends and upset your mom. Oh, you were just talking about that, you know? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's, <laughs> yeah, this is my the results of my real life shit posting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I like this one just because it's it fills the the uh, job listing uh, meme that's been going around. It also has the ridiculous photo, and it also glorifies shit posting, which I encourage all of our listeners to do. Like we always say, you know, you don't have to write a five star review for us. You can go write one star review for someone else and tell them to listen to us. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. We are we are all on board with sabotaging the reviews of terrible liberal podcasts. That's right. That's um, right. 
And, uh, and so, yeah. The, well, then we the, have a, a this, two-parter, which is two memes that I yes, I I really I like. I set them up so that they would go into each other. But you can read the first it, one. Well, this one I like. As soon as I saw that one, I don't remember where I stole it from, but like I was putting this out on like everything because it's like it's it's definitely in the the strongly in the spirit of many other memes that we've posted on here, where you've got this 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 worker in uh, what looks to be some sort of a you know heavy industrial machine shop. Looks like they make like I don't know industrial tubing or something, and you've got your worker there. He's got his hard hat in his hands, looking a bit you know uh like he's getting uh, reprimanded yeah and you've got the the supervisor there and his hard hat this old dude like yelling at him and it says caption boss why aren't you working me i didn't see you coming (laughs) (laughs) and Uh, it's true so true (laughs) it's like that's that's uh you know the the honest answer that you're not ever going to tell them but is you know pretty much always true and and as you said, this second meme explains why it's fine to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, not only the why it's fine, but it, this is literally that that boss who went out there and yes. he's like, I can't get anyone to put this out there. I'm going to go and put these letters up on the sign myself. And it's for a place called Dino Storage. But uh, it's just a, one of those... Uh, what do you call them where you put the letters on the board and it's for like people driving past to read um you know similar to like what's below the like fast food signs and they're like we're hiring text this number if you want to get harassed by us forever Um, yeah (laughs) and uh and this one just says laziness hurts one's employer and i just imagine (laughs) that this guy after he heard the worker say i didn't see you coming he's like uh, I don't even know what to do about this. And he goes out to the side and puts the laziness hurts one's employer out on the thing. It's like, good, yeah. fuck you. Yeah, it's that one. Like, I love like the truth telling jokey nature of the first meme. This second one, I love the fact that it isn't technically a meme. It's like just a picture somebody took of this absurd sign. Like the the fucking like business owner brain that it takes to put that on the sign for your own business. Like I could see that the, you know, the tyrant brain to put that up in the break room or something, which would still be stupid. And, and it's like, look, if you don't want your workers to be lazy, pay them more money. Like if you pay people more money, they will work harder for you. (laughs) I will be the ideological state apparatus of my local (laughs) block. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. It's like I must go out there and proselytize this. I must go admonish all the lazy workers at all the businesses because it makes me so mad. It's like yeah. it's it's uh. just such a wild mentality, but you see it everywhere. There's so many people who fall into that thought process. Like you see all the people like freaking out about people, like a few people robbing a Nordstrom rack in like or some fucking high-end store. It's like, who cares? Why do you care about that? The right. place is insured. Who right. gives well, a shit? <laughs> and I definitely, I mean, like, I don't encourage, you know, individuals to go out there and and do this sorts of thing. No, you of know, course not. Because, we do not encourage that sort of thing. Right, because it's very dangerous for individuals. You're going to be way less prepared for, like, any situation. You really, like, 
I don't know. It's just not safe for if you were one person. You and my, I'm not saying you need multiple people. You know, like to de- coordinate gangs of looters because that sounds bad. Anyway, we're gonna end the episode without a further explanation. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just the uh, boss brain is just one of those bizarre things. It's so wild to see it out there because it's like yeah, it's it's like all those signs that we were seeing with the like that nobody wants to work anymore, like because they. Want won't take $12 an hour to work, you know, fucking 12 hour days, six days a week, breaking their backs. <laughs> Laziness hurts one employer. Yeah, yeah, man. Nobody cares. Yeah. Pay them better. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to say like, if, if I could be lazy enough to hurt my employer out of existence, that I would, <laughs> I would lay in bed for the rest of my life. Hell uh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, that is going to be the episode for this week. And we really appreciate y'all for listening and sharing these episodes with people. And uh, if you'd like, you can become a patron and get access to a bunch of episodes where we explain things like the nature of the state, or we have a bunch of different uh, explanation episodes that Dan has done, or I did one on on who Saul Alinsky is. And we're going to be putting out more of that content over the next couple of months. And and we really encourage people to go to patreon.com slash work stoppage and throw us five dollars because it really does help us get this podcast done. If you cannot afford that and you want access to those things, join us in the discord. There is a link in the in the description here of this episode so that you can come and hang out with us, see these memes so you can actually go and look at that swimsuit meme of the fucking wild, absolutely wild. Um, again, you can write a five-star review for us. That's very nice. We appreciate it. You like, you can actually just do any sorts of malicious thing and then just, you know, say, Hey, no, go listen to these people, you know, cause we're, we're, we're very, we're okay with that. Follow, uh, John, who will hopefully be back next week at Facebook villain. Uh, and Dan is on not only the Twitter at, uh, work stoppage pod, but also we have a Facebook. So if you look up work stoppage, uh, it's got the cat logo and, you know, like us there. So you can see some of the memes that we post there and listen to red game table. I hear that there is more content coming soon from that. So maybe get That's caught right. up if you have not, uh, already listened to some of that. And, uh, as always labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. <laughs> Let this be a normal field trip with a friend? No way! Cruising on down Main Street, you're relaxed and feeling good. Next thing that you know, you'll see it. What's in my neighborhood? Surfing on the sine wave, swinging through the stars. Take a left at Joey Tatton. Take your second right past Mars on the Magic School Bus. Alligator Nostril. Climb on the Magic School Bus. Make a plane turn to. Come on in and don't be shy. Come on. Just to make your day complete. You might get baked into a pie on the magic scuba. Step inside, it's a wild ride.